This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Hi, this is Kevin Murphy. Welcome to Ethics Lab Essentials. Training clinicians on how to have goals of care discussions, how to do the advanced care planning, how to fill out advanced directives, to incorporate some systems change along with that, mortality review committees, data data review processes, and so forth. Uh, we, we were able to find at least our institution at our smaller community hospital that we were able to decrease mortality rate by 27%. But it wasn't just communication alone. It wasn't just documentation alone. It was really a, a comprehensive uh, approach to uh, conversations, documenting conversations and accountability. Ethics Lab Essentials highlights topics and guests that are foundational for members of healthcare ethics committees. Each podcast episode is led by expert contributors and equips ethics committees with better knowledge, leading to practical results. Mark, it's great to have you join us again as a lead contributor on Ethics Lab Essentials. This episode on goals of care grew from your earlier episode on do not resuscitate orders. What is the connection between these two episodes for you? Thanks for the opportunity, Kevin. The idea for this podcast really grew out of the conversations from our guests on the podcast related to do not resuscitate orders. Each one of them mentioned the importance of a goals of care conversation being at the foundation of high quality discussions around code status. So for me, it seemed absolutely essential to have a podcast focused on goals of care. That's interesting, Mark. For this episode on goals of care, what stood out for you? Two things that really stood out for me, Kevin, uh, in this podcast around goals of care. One, is the shared experience of what motivated uh, each of our guests to focus on goals of care. And secondly, the change in practice, personally, professionally, and beyond that in terms of influencing medicine as a whole. And I think you'll be excited to hear uh, that throughout the podcast. In this podcast, we are joined by Dr. Ken Berkowitz, Chief Ethics Consultation National Center for Ethics and Healthcare, the Veterans Health Administration, and Associate Professor of Medicine and Population Health, NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Tim Jessick, Chair and Co-Founder of Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin, Palliative Medicine Physician at Advocate Aurora Health. Dr. Jill Lowry, Chief Ethics Policy National Center for Ethics and Healthcare at the Veterans Health Administration and Dr. James Telsky, Chair, Department of Psychosocial Oncology and Palliative Care, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Chief Division of Palliative Medicine, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Goals of care, a term so common to healthcare professionals. In fact, it's a term so common to the professional patient relationship. And yet our guests describe significant clinical experiences throughout their careers in which the lack of a discussion around goals of care led to problematic cases. I mean, goals of care should be sort of obvious. Uh, We only want to do for someone something that makes sense for where they're headed and what their values are. Um, 
the problem is is that uh, sometimes technology and other imperatives have run ahead of themselves a bit. And there are, and sometimes from the perspective of the medical community, um, certain things seem obvious to do uh, to prolong life, um, to do what clinicians might think is for a patient's well-being. And we've lost sight of what it is that a patient, him or herself, actually wants. Losing sight is certainly significant, but perhaps medicine itself or, or the complexity of practice is to blame. Our guests would say perhaps somewhat, but it's not that simple. I think there's a couple different layers to that, that aspect. One is that medicine has changed dramatically. You know, back when I was a family physician, that was my role, to not only do the medical part of care, but also have these goals of care discussions with patients, families. It's just a part of what I did as a primary care clinician. Now that's not the case any longer. Now, because of healthcare being so siloed, um, outpatient care being provided by a primary care physician, uh, ED doc taking care of the folks in the ED, uh, hospitalist, specialist in the hospital, nursing home docs, and so forth, the responsibilities are very uh, segmented and, and separate. So there's really no continu- continuity as far as the care being delivered. So you really don't have as much of an opportunity to have those goals of care discussions because clinicians are focused more on the pneumonia or the chest pain or whatever is going on. So that's, I think that's part of it is because of the siloed healthcare system. I think the second piece is, that, is medicine in general. Uh, we see in medicine now, uh, and it has been for a while, that clinicians um, see their role as someone that hears the problem, makes a diagnosis, figures out treatments for that diagnosis, and then move on. The, the, the thought and the presence of a goals of care discussion is contrary to that. Really, instead of asking a clinician to ask a bunch of questions, we really want a clinician to listen, um, figure out what the patient's goals are, figure out what their wishes are, figure out what makes most sense for them and to them. And then from us as a clinician, figure out what treatments make sense for them uh, based on those discussions. And that's not something that clinicians generally do, nor is it something that they have been trained to do in the past. You know, that means that people can say, well, you know, this isn't my job and have the expectation that someone else is going to address goals of care or overall treatment planning with an individual patient. Another thing that feeds into this is that clinicians are expected to see more patients in less time. There's pressure to keep up with developments in science and technology, and there's less focus on the person. What does this person want? What's most important to them? And so a lot of clinicians, I think, are really focused on all of the information and the knowledge and the the medical options and not focus so much on the patient and what's important to the patient. So given the complexity of care delivery, the continually increasing demands placed on time, and the seemingly corresponding diminishment of the conversation in favor of intervention, well, it might suggest a pretty bleak future. Yet, you all suggest that clinicians are often not trained to have the conversations around goals of care. So, is the first step as simple as more training? Traditionally, time spent on this hasn't been incentivized. 
in fact, I think it's a very good investment of time. And that by having a good goals of care conversation, by making explicit in the documentation what the patient is trying to achieve through their health care and maybe uh, what they're trying to avoid, that you really promote quality, ethics quality in the treatment planning, and you are able to align treatment planning with the patient's goals, which ultimately would be required for high-quality health care. So is there something in the simplicity of the risk-benefit calculus that lends itself to a higher likelihood of goals-of-care conversations, namely that more will occur? So I think that when a a patient walks in to see us, um, we generally uh, are all on the same page. Most people come to see the doctor or other clinician because they want to get better. Uh, And clinicians are driven by the same thing. We want to help our patients get better. And there are many situations in which that's just sort of obvious. Um, If a young person with a pneumonia comes into the hospital uh, and we can cure that fairly straightforwardly, uh, we don't even really ask questions about what they want. I mean, perhaps we should, but we don't. Um, We tend to just treat it. And we're almost always on the same page. And that really continues through lots of kinds of treatments. It's when the benefits and risks of treatment, or I should say the benefits and burdens of treatment, start to get uh, more equal to each other. And the benefits are more dependent on what someone's goals or values really are, that it gets much harder uh, to, to figure out what is actually the right thing to do. And that's where we need to explicitly find out what it is that a patient wants, or more importantly, what, what's really most important to them? What are they concerned about? And then to try to match our treatments to those goals. Uh, the issue is that we just don't always do that um, because we're so used to perhaps not doing it uh, that we just kind of march along. And, and at its worst, uh, that can mean that we end up with care that really is not concordant with patients' goals, and that's tough. I would imagine that since all of you shared that goals of care conversations are certainly the preferred communication route with patients, there have probably been and will likely continue to be instances where goals of care conversations either do not go well or are non-existent. Um, is there a instance that you can point to that shaped your view on the importance of goals of care conversations? So I still distinctly remember 20 years ago as a family practice resident working in the ICU. I can remember the patient. I can remember the family distinctly to this day. Um, sick uh, female patient, a very loving, supporting family, um, spending about a week in the intensive care unit. We, it was time for us to make some decisions as far as what to do and what not to do. So I went to my ICU attending and said, hey, I think we need to have some sort of a family meeting or a goals of care discussion, something like that with his family because they're really confused as far as what to do. His reply was something to the effect of, well, I think that's a really good idea, but I can't do that right now. Or I have something urgent I have to attend to. Why don't you start and I'll join you later? You know, as an ICU attending, I felt this tension over and over and over. Uh, between being faced with a patient who couldn't speak for themselves, who we didn't know, 
who was in uh, an acutely uh, medically, uh, who was acutely ill, who was crit- acutely critically ill. And we really had no idea uh, what the patient's goals were. And that, like I said, we, we got used to that. We faced that over and over. But when it really crystallized for me was when I was uh, doing an ethics consultation and we were called stat one morning to come down and, and meet with three children of a patient, an elderly gentleman who had been admitted the night before. And he was admitted for um, one of several rounds of chemotherapy. He had problems with him before and it was being done as an inpatient. And the night before when he got admitted, he was in his bed. He, uh, the nurses came and saw him before the uh, team came and saw him. So he had no orders written. And he was in cardiopulmonary arrest. So they called the code. He was resuscitated. He was brought to the ICU. And the family was furious. They said, how could you do this? You you knew dad. Uh, you knew he didn't want to be resuscitated. You knew he didn't want to be on a ventilator. And he's exactly where he didn't want to be. So the ethics consultants went down to the ICU. And we got there just as they were uh, liberating the patient from the ventilator, extubating him, and he was wide awake. So we went back to the family. It was a successful resuscitation. We told the family that he seemed to have choked on some food he was eating, and that resulted in an arrest, but he, the food was dislodged, and he's back to normal. They were thrilled. They were happy. They ran down the hall. There was hugs. There was tears. Everyone was, the anger melted away, and it turned into just this rejoicing. And I said, but wait a minute. If he had uh, a DNR order in place, if he hadn't been resuscitated, he would have passed yesterday. And the patient looked at me and he said, oh, I would never want to be resuscitated. And I said, well, if they hadn't used that ventilator, you probably wouldn't be here either. He goes, no, no, I would never want a ventilator. I said, well, you were resuscitated and that is a ventilator. So what do you really mean when you're saying that you wouldn't want to be resuscitated and you wouldn't want a ventilator because now you're happy that all of that was um, done to you. And he said, oh, he said, well, I didn't know that's what that was. He said, what I really mean is if I'm permanently unconscious and I can't speak to my family, then that's not how I want to live. I don't want to live if I'm a vegetable were his exact words. And to me, that was the aha moment. He and the family had latched on to the language of do not resuscitate, of no mechanical ventilation, because they had an image in their mind of what that meant. And no one had discussed what it really meant from a medical perspective. No one had discussed time-limited trials of therapy. No one had discussed what he was trying to avoid or what were his goals of care. Dr. Talsky, you shared a very similar story from, I believe, your third year of residency. The emergency room physician attending had asked the wife, do you want us to do everything for your husband? And she gave the only answer that a loving spouse can give, which is yes. And his interpretation of that then was to intubate him, put him on ventilation and send him up to me. When I sat down with the wife uh, and learned from her what was going on and the story it was clear that this was not at all the sort of ending that they had hoped for him. And we, in short order, decided to withdraw the, the, the ventilation, uh, waited just in time for his son to come in. And then we did that, and he passed away that evening. And 
But what struck me at that moment was the enormous power of words. And it was a great example of how this doctor actually thought he was giving this patient a choice or this wife a choice. And perhaps if he was using this, would have used this language, he would have thought that that was goal concordant. But the problem was is that the language he used to give that choice actually constrained all choices. And there was only one possible answer, and it led to an outcome that nobody had wished for. So it seems to me we have to ask the question then, how do we change the practice of medicine? How do we engage in systematic or proactive goals of care conversations with patients and families? Is it culture? Is it incentives? Some of you pointed to that. Or is it something different? Is it a more foundational, perhaps upstream approach? So, so upstream really is um, two parts. The clinical piece, starting to have some early conversations about healthcare and wants and goals down the road, and encouraging those family dis- discussions early on as well. You know, too often we think that it's too early to initiate these conversations with patients. Um, And often it feels too early until it's actually too late. And we know that when the patient's in the midst of a health crisis, um, after the patient's lost decision-making capacity, it's really too late to start talking about the patient's goals of care and their preferences for treatment given those goals. So moving this conversation earlier in the course of illness is so important because it gives people time to really think about what what do they want and what would they want to accomplish if their time is limited and so being able to do this in the in an outpatient setting with a clinician that they know well somebody that they already have an existing relationship with with um, can be such a valuable um, contribution to the process and in some ways really a gift to the patient to help them really be thinking about uh, you know if things don't go well how, what would I want to happen or what would I want to avoid? So we really work with our clinicians on thinking about this as a proactive discussion, not waiting until the patient's ready for hospice, but really thinking about how, how can we get this person to start thinking about this given what we know um, about the seriousness of their illness. And so we've done a lot of work to really get people thinking about, is this person really at risk for some kind of life-threatening clinical event in the next one to two years? And if the answer to that is, yes, they are at risk, then we need to start having that conversation with them. And it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's something that we need to continue to talk to our patients over time about, but to at least get the process started um, earlier on. So we developed the Life-Sustaining Treatment Decisions Initiative as a way to help people across the continuum of care really understand the importance of these discussions um, and to give them some tools to be able to do it well. So I guess I have to ask, you know, what does this look like? Um, is, Is this policy? Is it procedure? Is it oversight? Could you share uh, your approach at your institution? One thing we did is we developed a national policy which establishes standards for conducting proactive goals of care conversations with patients with serious illness. And we developed a progress note template for documenting these conversations in a place in the EHR that's really easy to find. So within one click, you can find that goals of care conversation. 
We also developed a durable order set to capture the patient's decisions about life-sustaining treatment. And those orders stay in place and follow the patient from one level of care to another. We also know that a lot of our clinicians who take care of patients with serious illness have never actually had any kind of formal communication skills training um, in how to have these conversations. And so we developed uh, a training program that uh, allows clinicians from primary care and home-based primary care all the way through outpatient subspecialty care and inpatient medicine and long-term care and the ICU really learn how to have a good conversation with a patient or with the, with the patient's family um, about what's important and then to establish a plan um, for life-sustaining treatments that, the, that best support those patients' goals of care. But it sounds like this can be more than even institutional change. What I'm hearing from you is that these experiences can actually change a clinician's perspective on goals of care conversations so significantly that it may even change one's life's work. After that, I really went and embarked on a career uh, studying language in medicine, and particularly language and how we communicate toward the end of life. I think we can be, do so much to elicit patients' values and goals early on. We can do it in non-scary ways, and we can do it in ways uh, that will help us down the road. Um, and, and I think it's it, most goals of care conversations at their best are really a series of conversations. So it's never hard to ask someone something as simple as, if you ever got so sick that we couldn't talk to you about what was important to you, who do you want us to speak with? Eliciting what, who their healthcare proxy is. And then asking the next question, which is once they've given, this is the person you want us to talk to, have you ever spoken to them about what's most important to you? And that may trigger a conversation that otherwise may not have happened. And you now have in your medical record, uh, the right person to talk to. That's not scary for most people to share. Most people, you can do this very early on in any illness or even not in the context of an illness. Uh, and that's sort of a first step. I think there are other things that we can ask. Uh, when a person does become ill, uh, the key questions that I like to ask are, given where this illness is right now, what's most important to you? And I'll also ask people, are there any things you're most worried about or afraid of? Or variations on that might be, what hopes do you have? And these are questions that I'll ask at stages along the illness. Near the beginning of the podcast, uh, all of you mentioned fragmentation, silos, uh, barriers that exist within our models of care delivery that often limit effective goals of care conversations. So given the relationship between goals of care discussions and ethics consultation, what is the one thing that is within the scope of an ethics committee that would help improve institutional work on goals of care? So as you know, Mark, we have a, a broader view of, of what an ethics committee is than just ethics consultation. And in our system, we think of ethics committees as integrated ethics programs. Finally, if there were a way to impress upon clinicians a framework that could aid in creating successful 
high quality goals of care conversations. What might that look like? First of all, I think that it's so important to ask before we tell. And um, when we have news to share with the patient, and I'm particularly thinking now about serious news, um, something that has a negative valence that you know potentially has a, a, a bad implication for the patient, um, it, the best way to do that is to first ask the patient their own understanding. I usually say something like, what do you understand about what's going on with your illness? Or if it's the first time I'm meeting somebody, I'll frequently say, what have the other doctors or the other clinicians told you is going on? Because that way you find out first what they know. If they tell you, well, the doctors tell me that I have this advanced cancer and there's no treatment available for it. And, um, you know, you know, the outcome doesn't look good. Then I know I'm in one place with that patient. If on the other hand, they tell me, well, you know, I have a little bit of cancer, but I know it's going to be treated and I'm going to be cured. And then I'm dealing with something completely different. And that will really change the rest of the conversation. Um, so I never assume that I know where the patient is ask, I, at. I always ask them first, you know, what's your understanding? The second thing I would encourage people to do is to ask permission before sharing difficult news. For that matter, I think asking permission before doing almost anything as a clinician is a good thing. Um, if I were to listen to myself today, uh, having a conversation with a patient and compare that with a conversation from 15 years ago, there would be a lot of differences, but I'm sure that the number one difference, or I suspect the number one difference would be how much I now ask permission. Is it all right if we go ahead and talk about the CT scan results? Would it be okay if we move forward and talk about what the next steps are? Would it be okay if, you know, I constantly am asking permission. And what this does is it gives the patient a little more control uh, and it stages the conversation a little bit in a way that um, makes it easier and makes the flow better. So ask before you tell, ask permission before you tell. Uh, those would be two things. And then the third, which is probably the most important thing, is respond to emotion. Um, I already hinted at this before, but I'll be a little more explicit. Uh, there are many moments and conversations that we call empathic opportunities. And these are these moments when a patient shares some sort of negative affect. Um, it could be anything from an oh my, or I can't believe that, to simply a sigh. But you know that they're having a negative emotion, fear, sadness, um, you know, bewilderment, frustration, whatever it might be, anger. And what we know from the literature is, is that about three quarters of the time that patients have those emotions, those empathic opportunities, we as clinicians ignore them. And that's to our loss because you really need to respond to that emotion in order to move a conversation forward. It's certainly the compassionate thing to do, but I'm not recommending it because of compassion. This is not about being nice. I mean, being nice is a good thing. I don't want people not to be nice. But this is about 
actually facilitating a therapeutic encounter. This is about being able to move a conversation forward in the direction you want it to go. People become so overwhelmed with their emotion when they hear serious news that the rest of their brain shuts down and they can't think. And so we have to help them process that a little bit. And so when we respond to that empathic opportunity, we allow them to do that. And the way we respond is what we would call, you know, an empathic continuer or an empathic response. And this is just something like naming the emotion. I can see that this is really scary. Or I can't imagine what you're going through right now. Or you've been so brave through all of this. There's so many different ways we talk about how to do this. But you need to respond to that emotion. And only then will you be able to move the conversation forward. Those three things I just mentioned, asking before telling, asking permission before moving on, and responding to emotion, are done so much less frequently than they ought to be. And when they're done well, they make all the difference in having a good conversation about delivering serious news or discussing goals of care. Appreciation to our guests and listeners on this episode of the Ethics Lab Essentials podcast. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.